G'day listeners, this episode is proudly brought to you by our major sponsor, subshq.com.au. Use code BENS15 at checkout to receive 15% off on your next purchase. G'day listeners and welcome back to another episode of the Matter Mentality podcast where we talk all things training, nutrition, psychology and helping you optimize your performance. Today I am joined by a very uh, special, unique guest. Uh, Given all the things that most of you no doubt know that I'm interested in and passionate about, I have read every book from Gareth Timms to David Goggins to Jocko Wilnick. Uh, I am joined by a very special or elite special forces former operative, Paul Jordan. How are you, mate? Doing very well. How are you, Ben? Mate, I am uh, I'm fantastic. It's a Friday morning here, which means another the weekend. The Olympia weekend's coming up for us who follow bodybuilding. I'm, I'm having a great time. Oh, there you go. All right. I'll check it out. And uh, how are you, mate? What's going on over there? How's America? Doing well. It's uh, quite cold here at the moment. Um, I was outside today and I thought I was going to get frostbite and, uh, you know, not as hard as I used to be in my earlier days. And I reckon it's about <laughs> minus 10 outside at the moment. Oh, shit. Uh, Oh, yeah, it's cold. It's, uh, you know, we're, uh, not too far in the distant. You can see the mountains and there's uh, beautiful snow up there. So it was skiing. Where, where are you exactly? Denver, Colorado. Ah, Denver. Yeah. There you go. It's a bit yeah. different from the uh, Brisbane weather. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. No kidding. How long have you been over there for? Uh, I've been living in the States for three years, but I had two years in Miami and Florida, uh, which is very much like um, uh, Brisbane weather, Sunshine yep. Coast weather. And then we moved to Denver about a year ago, right? Uh, which is very much like nowhere else I've ever lived. And it's very cold. <laughs> How do you find the difference between the uh, between the two cultures? Like I find America, America is like a, there's a culture everywhere, right? Like it's not a unique, like there's an Australian culture. America, I don't find has a unique culture. Every location is different. Yeah, it, it is very different. It does take a little bit of getting used to. Um, I do love living in America. It is truly the land of opportunity. Yeah. Uh, but it's also not easy. And uh, living here, you grow to appreciate very quickly uh, the wonderful existence we do have in Australia and yep. uh, and how easy it is to live in Australia. Yep. I know we complain about taxes and all these other <laughs> things, but yeah. I can tell you, why do you live in America and realize how challenging life can be? Mm-hmm. You can't just go to a hospital when you're sick because that's yep. going to cost you a lot, a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, you know, and just a lot of simple things that are very different here to what they would be in Australia. The gun culture. Yeah. And I, you know, have a, 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 a professional history of uh, yeah. where I trained in the use of weapons, but I'm not a gun nut. And yep. uh, boy, oh boy, everyone here's got a gun. You, you know, more people are being shot here. Uh, every year than we're being killed in Afghanistan in a war, yeah. but uh, nothing seems to happen. So it's a strange, yeah. strange location. Having said all that again, I do like living here. It's a great country, good people. Yeah, every, every place has its uh, pros and cons, right? Absolutely. Um, I guess like uh, the starting off point, because I mean, I, I could jump into to anywhere. Like I said, I, I have read everything that Jocko and uh, Gareth Timmons have, and I've just even bought... Um, uh, uh, David Goggins' new book to to listen to as well. I could jump in at any point, but uh, I guess the the starting point because the big thing for me, like a lot of my followers, a lot of what we do, I'm not, I'm sure that Brooklyn has, has talked to you about what we kind of do and what my passions are, um, maybe once or twice. But my 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 biggest interest I've always found in my background is I've always looked up to and studied and idolized people that just challenge and they push themselves and they push things to the limit, uh, whether that be elite, you know 
top tier athletes, top tier executives and CEOs, or, you know, top tier or elite special forces like yourself. Like there's a, there's just something to be respected and admired about people that push the limits of what should be possible. And well, to a degree that is the SAS, like there is not much more to say than, than that's kind of like pushing the physical and mental boundaries. So if you could, uh, I guess, give us a bit of a background of what really got you into it. What really got you to that decision that this is what I want to try and do. Well, um, I, you know, I came from a background where, you know, we didn't have a lot, of, a lot of money as a kid. I grew up in the northern suburbs of Brisbane and my path was kind of laid out very clearly. I would leave mm-hmm. school when I was 15. I'll get a job in the factory. And by the time yep. I'm 21, I'll be married. And by the time I'm 24, I'll have five kids. And when I'm 30, I'll be broke and divorced. Yep. Uh, that was pretty much how it was. And, 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 and a lot of my friends went down that path. Yep. Uh, but I recognize, and I don't know what spurred me on to say that I'm going to break away, but I recognize now that as an 18, 19 year old, it was quite a courageous thing where mm-hmm. I just said to all my friends, I'm not doing that. I'm going to join the army. And, you know, they all frantically tried to talk me out of it. Think yep. of all the 21st birthday parties you're going to miss and you're nuts. This is the time of your life. And I said, no, I'm going. And, and I broke away and I joined the army. And um, when I did join the army, I recognized very quickly that uh, I'd found my home. Yeah, uh, I loved the structure. I yeah. loved the discipline. I loved getting paid to be fit and to be hard. And yeah, you know, it was like it was like when you're a kid playing cowboys and Indians uh, with all your buddies. Suddenly, I'm getting paid a lot of money to do this, and yeah. I'm carrying yeah. weaponry. Yeah, um, but as a soldier, uh, not all the people I worked with thought the same. Yep. So I quickly recognize that within that team environment, you are only as strong as your weakest link. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and I wanted to be better. I wanted mm-hmm. my team to be better. But a lot of people, you know, to, and each to their own, they showed up, they did their bit and they went home where I wanted to push it and yep. go hard and be super, super strong and and, yep. and be, be the best. And uh, I learned very quickly that that was probably the SAS. Uh, yep. But I also recognized that, uh, that it, I held them in such high regard that I never pretended that I would get in, that I would be part of that. Yeah. But I knew I wanted to have a go. I didn't want yeah. to disappoint myself and not challenge myself to do that. And boy, oh boy, uh, when I went to the uh, SAS selection course, it, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced in my life. I mean, I'd done some hard stuff in the military. Yeah. I did hard stuff as a kid, but mm-hmm. doing that SAS selection course, it was it was beyond what you can imagine, but you quickly realize that the, the idea is that the, 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 in those days the course was twenty eight days long, mm-hmm. uh, and that you, you you are not it's a volunteer course, so yep. you you volunteer for it. They don't select you. Anyone yep. who says SAS asked me to come and do their course, they're lying. They, <laughs> they, they never did because they don't. They don't care. Yeah, um, you have to want to do it yourself. And you're not allowed to withdraw from the course for five days because that would be seen as an overreaction. So consequently, for the first five days, it is pure hell. Yeah, uh, There's very little sleep. They push you as hard as they possibly can. What you discover later is what they are trying to do is break you down, get you to that point of complete and utter exhaustion. Now they're going to test you mm-hmm. because before that point of complete exhaustion, you are fake, Paul. You yeah. are the Paul you're putting on this persona yeah. uh, that you believe they want to see. Uh, suddenly now you are completely exhausted. Fake Paul is gone. Yeah. The real Paul comes to the fore. Yeah. 
that's the guy that uh, that they want to test mm-hmm. uh, because that's that's the person they are looking for. How will that person respond when they are completely empty? When they think the fuel tank is completely gone, uh, and how will they respond? And that's the person we want to check. So, uh, well. At the end of five days, uh, you know, I think there was 180 of us on the course. Well, about 60 mm-hmm. people left. For me, though, I, I wasn't going anywhere because I rec- I knew straight away, well, I'm, I, these guys are really good. We were being tested by existing SAS yeah. uh, operators. And I could see how professional they were and I wanted to be part of it. So I wasn't going anywhere. But I did gain a lot of strength from the failure of others. Yeah. Uh, for me, that was a mental win. Suddenly, I'm better than these other people. I'm still, <laughs> yeah, and I'll keep going. And you know, it was difficult because uh, our bodies were exhausted. Uh, we were lit, we had limited sleep. Uh, you quickly learn resilience. Yeah, uh, you know, it, uh, it's not part of who you are. I mean, they kind <laughs> of teach you without yeah. knowing that they're teaching you to be resilient. Just get through to the end of the day, put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Uh, just get to that next post. Just keep going a little bit more, and we'll see what happens. And and before you know it, you're at the end, and uh, you know, completely spent. And um, and, and and you don't, you haven't at that point point gained entry into the SAS. You've merely been selected to continue on with the training. Yeah. yeah. And I think there was uh, twenty odd of us left there at the end, and and we went forward. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I guess it's like like it's something that I wrote about in a, in a blog not too long ago was that that people misconstrue this idea that hard work guarantees success or that it's like your it's your you know that that entitles you to your win if you will. This is kind of like a, a physical re- like reflection of the fact that just because you worked hard doesn't mean you just get in. It's more so like you've just got the right to keep working. Just because you're putting the hard yards or you're putting the effort now, it doesn't mean you've automatically got first place because there's everyone else that's working just as hard. It's just that the reality is all that's given you is the chance to keep going. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I, you know, I, 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 I so dislike that word entitled because we see it a lot now with a lot of people. Uh, you are entitled to absolutely nothing. Yeah. And uh, you quickly discover that every day and the, you know, when we, when we, I think day two of the selection course, the commanding officer stood in front of us and said, uh, you came to us, we didn't come to you. So yep. you have to show us you've got the goods. And then when you get to that point, uh, when you are finally selected, and you know the big days when they hand you a Sandy Beret, well, that's that's that that's that part of resilience, that visualization. Yeah, uh, you know that might come, you might be fortunate enough, and that's that visualizing to keep you moving forward. Yeah. And when he handed the berets, he said, you know, getting in is the hard bit, staying in. Uh, sorry, getting in is the easy bit, staying in is the hard bit. And it was absolutely right because every day was are you still good enough to be in the SAS? Yeah. Uh, and, and and you quickly recognize that. And I love that situation mm-hmm. uh, because every day you worked really hard to perform. You worked really hard to be better, uh, to be better than you were yesterday. And it was a complete recreation of the leadership style that I was used to. In, in a battalion as a soldier, I remember uh, uh, one of my section commanders, when I was a private soldier, a corporal said, uh, on an exercise, we are going, get up, we're going, we're going, we're, we're leaving now. And I said, well, where are we going? He said, you'll find out when we get there. I said, <laughs> yeah. well, how far are we walking? He said, you'll know when we arrive. Well, <laughs> you quickly realize that in the SAS, that that rubbish isn't going to cut it. Yeah. The, we need to know why. We need to yeah. know where we're going. We need to know why we're doing this. 
and we need to know every aspect of every every step we're going to take and they recognize that mm-hmm. uh, and you are as a private or a trooper in the SAS you are treated with the utmost respect by every other person in that regiment including the commanding officer to the point where you know that the, these giant silos uh, that are built up in a lot of corporations now but also in, in infantry battalions mm-hmm. are broken down yep. Commu- lines of communication are wide open you are encouraged to offer suggestions on a better way of doing business. Mm-hmm. And if you think of another way of doing something or we can improve upon a technique, uh, then you offer that information forward and yep. it is well received. If it works, great. We are better now than we were yesterday because mm-hmm. of what you just put up. So that's a wonderful situation you find yourself in and you find yourself continuously wanting to improve and get better and get better. Yeah, it's the... There's so many things to expand on from that. I'm like, hopefully we'll just try and cover several of them because, you know, I've like one of my favorite things about Jocko is how he, and it's something I've tried to do with a lot of people is a lot of what I do is trying to get people to understand that the elite teams, the elite athletes, the elite performers, the elite soldiers, they're not these out of reach, morally high or superior people. It's just that from them, we can learn how to do things better in life. But I, I, I often see in society, we ridicule people who are better than us or who we perceive as better or, you know, they've worked harder or they have, you know, I could have been that pro athlete if. And it kind of takes away from the fact that instead of looking at these people as people we can learn from, we often try to bring them down or, or ridicule and mock them to kind of make them seem more human. But to me, I look at it like, you know, for yourself and the way Jocko sort of compared and took from his, his field work and took it to other places like other domains and realms that it can be implied in, you know, the, the, the ownership, the, the teamwork, the camaraderie, the way that you just, just described sharing ideas and coming forward with a decentralized sort of command, you're all involved in the process and it makes everyone else better. All these things that you can kind of take from that environment and put it elsewhere and make elsewhere better. But for some reason we look at like uh, elite people, if you will, and kind of, almost look down on them or they're often like ridiculed by the media and mocked and then sort of made fun of. But just in what you described there has been so common across people I've spoken to that, that the elite people, they, they take what they know or these people that are achieving big things. We're taking what we know and applying it elsewhere to make it better. And I, I try to, well, that's how I try to get across to my clients and people that I work with is, you know, just because these people are doing the, you know, you, you don't want to be an elite athlete. That's fine. But the more that we can get these sort of, skills or these uh, abilities or these uh, systems or processes and apply it to our own life, the better we're going to be instead of trying to look at, say, you know, bringing them down to us. Why don't we just see how much better we can be each day to be similar to what they're doing? And, you know, it's it's not always well received from people that instead of saying, Hey, you know, you can actually be better if you get what I mean. Like it's, it's people don't often look at it as if, you know, they, they aren't out of reach. You can just be better, but you don't want to sort of take that ownership on. No, I agree with you. And I think a lot of that is, um, you know, my first position out of the military, I, I worked with a uh, a group uh, in a mine site in the Highlands of PNG, and it was absolutely torturous. I, mm-hmm. I I was in a complete no man's land. I found the whole environment so toxic uh, that everyone was out for themselves. Everyone mm-hmm. was uh, throwing the throwing the slipper into each other behind their backs, and uh, and I really struggled. But you know, even in those situations, if you are a smart person. There, you know, there's there's two different types of learnings. You can do positive learning, you can do negative learning, mm-hmm. and you can realize, well, you know, when I find myself in a position, I will make sure that rubbish is stamped out. We will never have that uh, because it is so counterproductive to mm-hmm. development. 
uh, and counterproductive to success and moving forward. And I think a lot of what you talk about is, uh, uh, is you know, what I see a lot in those environments is insecurity. And I yep. see it a lot of, you know, in the old days, if you uh, if you were put in charge, if you're the CEO of the company, you surrounded yourself with people who weren't quite as smart as you because yep. then your job wasn't threatened. Yeah. Uh, if you owned your own company, you would surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. We know that one. And I totally disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I certainly believe in surrounding yourself with people who are better than me, who are smarter than me. Uh, and the SAS was truly like that. Yep. Uh, if you take somebody like a, a conductor of an orchestra or Steve Jobs, both the same. Jobs wasn't a, uh, a computer programmer. He wasn't a marketing genius. He wasn't mm-hmm. a designer. But he knew what he wanted to achieve. And he mm-hmm. knew how to bring these people together, like an, a, the, the conductor of the orchestra. Yep. He can't play all those intr- instruments. Yep. But he knows how to select the right people and mm-hmm. bring them into the right positions and create magic. Yep. And that's what we did in the SAS. We selected the right people. We brought them in. We gave them, we empowered them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we fed them the consciousness that we wanted them to have. We shared our consciousness that we mm-hmm. wanted them to possess. And we created this magic because they were empowered to be good. And we trusted them. And we weren't insecure about our own positions because we knew that I knew that I wasn't the best signaler, but yep. I knew that the signaler on my team he was good at that, and I yep. relied on him at that. There was another guy who was the climbing guru. Well, he would lead the climb, and we'd bring up the rear. I mm-hmm. didn't need to be the expert. Yep. I knew that he was, and I was quite comfortable as a leader, and I still am now, to ask people uh, to to expose that vulnerability of not knowing, and I'm okay with that, mm-hmm. and everybody should be okay. And I think if we got to that point, boy, we would, you know, we, we, the, the success would just open up. Oh, 100%. I, I completely agree. The amount of people that could benefit from just – accepting that potentially they're not the best or that, you know, someone might be able to offer something that's, that's different to their view that could be right. Um, you know, we get so caught up in trying to protect ego and protect face instead of sort of accepting that potentially this person alongside me or beneath me has just a good idea. And just because their position is X doesn't mean it's not worth listening to. No, exactly right. And I think comes also comes down to that age old line of respect. You know, we, we, we need to show respect as leaders and as people across all levels not just to the person that is most important and accounts to at the moment. Um, you know, whether I'm working in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, mm-hmm. the, the guy who's uh, uh, checking, the, doing the security on the front door, the guy who brings me a cup of tea is just as important as the yep. manager at the hotel. Yep. I don't care. This guy contributes. And that's what it's like in the SAS as well. The SAS can't work as a special forces unit on its own. Mm-hmm. It needs every battalion. It needs the artillery units, the cavalry units, the medical units. Mm-hmm. All every part of the Australian Defence Force works as one big unit, yep. and everyone needs those units. So it doesn't matter whether you're in the SAS. Good for you. It just means you've got a different set of skills yes. to the guy who's driving a tank. Yeah. Uh, but everybody is important. I guess if we um if we if we loop back to your training, because I really want to, uh, or sorry, more like your um your enlistment process with the SAS. Do you think, could you, I guess, looking back now, I guess in hindsight, could you identify the ones early on that you think, you know, you, you knew they weren't going to quite make it? Was there a difference between say the ones that went on and you could sort of see in their personality or their actions, their behaviors, or was it just simply grit just got them through versus the, you know, the ones who just simply couldn't quite cut it? Was there something like an identifying trait that you sort of, you know, these ones are probably going to drop out? 
Yeah, look, it, it, it's really hard because, I mean, I, I was, I don't know, 21 years old when I did it. And frankly, I, you know, I, I had a pulse of about 300 beats per minute from the day <laughs> yeah. I got off that bus. Uh, I, you know, I was almost having an anxiety attack. And, uh, <laughs> because, you know, suddenly I'm surrounded by these uh, people at that time I perceived to be super soldiers. And, um, and, and I really wanted to be part of it. Uh, and so... I wasn't really focused on anybody except what was going on with me and, mm -hmm. and, and trying to put my best foot forward. In later years, I was then tasked with uh, being an instructor on these courses. And it is hard to tell. You can pick out some people uh, who you know that it's uh, all talk. Yeah. Uh, they're all talk. They're talking themselves up too much. Uh, they're all bravado. They're looking yeah. down upon everybody else and they're not going to, they're not going to succeed. Now, keeping in mind that, uh, you know, at the start of my, I mean, I'm not a bad runner, but I'm not the best runner. Yeah. Uh, even at my peak of fitness, uh, there were probably 20 people on that selection course who could run a hell of a lot better than I could. Yep. Uh, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter for the, uh, for those assessing us. Now at the start, well, I was right up the front. Well, at mm -hmm. the end, it's only 40 people left and they got rid of a few more at the end. I was well down the back. Yeah. And that's when I started to get worried, but you know, when I when I when I eventually finished each physical event, I mean, I was on the point of throwing up, mm -hmm. and they could see that I'd put in everything that I possibly had. I had nothing left. Yeah, uh, and I'd given it everything I possibly could. Well, that counts for a lot because you are able to gain control of your your worst enemy in all these situations is your mind. Yeah, and the brain because the brain will start saying to you, "Mate, forget it, cut yeah. it there." Get on the bus. You'll be back in Fremantle tonight. You can have a cold beer and a hamburger. Forget all that. <laughs> and, and trying to get that negativity out of your mind. And yeah. only talk, you know, I talk to myself a lot, telling myself positive things, visualizing on that future, uh, whatever it might be, uh, to keep myself moving forward. Mm -hmm. Do you think like it's amazing? One of, one of my favorite things when I talk to people like yourself is, you know the the realm of psychology and mental cues and skills is stuff that I'm literally at university studying or kind of the 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 endeavor to focus on in the future for myself and the business. So there's a lot of technical sort of or theory and principles that you're describing. But I often find that these the people that are succeeding or these people that are achieving big things, whether it be athletes, soldiers like yourself, your elite special forces, business CEOs, they're they're not aware of the technical terminology or the technical uh I guess framework, if you will, but it's like an ingrained, like it comes naturally, like you just know that's what it is. Like hearing about the way you talk about self-talk, the way you talk about visualization, internal motivation, all these concepts that you know I try to take the principle of and teach people. I'm finding the more and more I talk to people like yourself, it's just kind of kind of like it comes innate that I should just talk to myself out of this uh, you know, doubt or negative self-talk, or I should just identify that visual cue, make sure I'm priming to that next point and say, you know, rather than because I often find like when I take on new bodybuilding clients or something like that, people that are trying to do something pretty intense, they'll look at the big picture and go, well, shit, this is 12 months away. This is 24 months away. Like this is going to be forever. And I'm, I, I can't diet for that long and yada, yada, or six months is a long time to diet for. And I'm like, hang on, hold up. Let's, let's just look at the first week. Let's just get the first week rolling and see how consistent we can be and build off that. And, you know, it's stuff that I've got to teach them, but it seems like from people like yourself, it just sort of comes innate or like automatic, if you will, would that, would that be a fair description? I don't know if it's automatic. I, I, I believe you can teach that resilience and those yeah. mental cues. Um, and 
you know, if you truly want something, your brain will tell you to, you, you, you know, I, I didn't know all this stuff when I was doing yeah, exactly. it. I was just doing it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for me, it was just get to the, get to that next bridge, get, get through tomorrow, just put one foot in front of the other. Um, you know, and people say, well, you know, I, I, I'm completely at the end of it. I'm completely exhausted. I've got nothing left in the tank. I need to sit down. Really? What happens when the bullets start ringing? I yeah. think when bullets start coming down range, let's see how quickly you move. Yeah, and uh, when you are completely spent and completely at the end, there's about another fifteen percent left in the tank. Yeah, you keep going. Uh, and look, the wonderful thing about doing that is that, it, unless you are an elite athlete and you've done a ultra and Ironman or a couple of marathons, and mm -hmm. uh, you you get to that eight hour mark on a marathon and you oh god, I got another ten k's to go. Uh, and it, 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 unless you've done that, unless you've pushed your body and your mind mm -hmm. to that point of, I'm done then you really don't know who you are. Yeah. You really don't know what you are truly capable of. Yeah. And uh, and that, that that's another positive to come out of uh, that sort of training. The other point you made, I think, is a good one. It's like when you, uh, you know, we used to spend a lot of time uh, on the range with weapons, training yep. in weapons. And we, we, we got to the point where you, we had to get to the point where you would subconsciously be working the weapons operating mm -hmm. a submachine gun and assault rifle and a pistol subconsciously while consciously being aware of everything that's going on around you and mm -hmm. everything slowing down, even though it's going a million miles an hour. Uh, but you do that just through that constant repetition, through mm -hmm. that constant ability to be able to absorb this information as quickly as you po possibly can. Now with a pistol, you know, you could say to yourself, don't jerk the trigger don't do this, don't mm -hmm. do that. None of that works. What you need to do is say, squeeze the trigger. Yep. That's right, that's right. Just hold it like this, do this. So create positive thoughts in your yep. mind rather than letting any negativity enter. Mm -hmm. Negativity will kill you. Yeah, that's like, it was one of the most interesting things I found in some in some research, just to literally double back on that. Um, one of the best ways they found improvement in uh, in cricketers that were losing or consistently going through like a pro pro season losing, if you will, um, especially in Australia, was, was some research was conducted, and they found the change from a, an athlete to what we call uh, technical self talk, as you're describing there, rather than being like don't stuff up, don't fuck up, don't shoot yourself in the foot, don't miss the bounce. It became I know that you know first stride forward, crease at the like the swing. I'm going to turn the bat this way, rotate here to get an edge. That's technically right. talking yourself through the process with a, with a with a sort of positive visualization improved batter connection batting strike rates being able to actually connect with the ball improve the the total runs of the team like just those few uh, skews, uh cues if you will reduce things like performance anxiety self doubt fear and insecurity of losing those things weren't even thought about because they were just simply talking themselves through the process of what to do you know even at the pro level like you know, I played rugby league for 20 years. I could know how I was supposed to spin a ball inside and out and, you know, not even second guess it. But even at the pro level, they're saying, you know, even at this level, the guys are still when they have a bad day or they come off the, you know, they're sort of deviating a little bit is just talk through the simple processes, talk through the the basic skills and sort of know exactly how you do it. If at the top level of batter, who's, you know, playing for Australia or the, the Brisbane Lions, uh, Brisbane Heat, they're still talking themselves through the skill set you should probably be talking yourself through the skill set as well. Like there's still things that you can go back and double back on and learn or, or correct or improve upon just from simplifying the process or, or talking through the technique rather than being like, don't screw up. Don't do this. You know, don't shoot yourself in the foot. Like it's so much more 
positively structured when you talk to yourself in that manner than just people saying, don't be shit. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think the add-on to that is that uh, we were very fortunate in the SAS where everyone around you is also seen as a coach. So yep. I learned from everybody. Uh, the guys that I'd gone into the SAS with, my peers to my uh, superiors, everyone was there to teach everybody uh, how to be better, yep. how to improve. And, and whether you had a mentor or whether it was just somebody you looked up to and wanted to emulate their skills, you know, I always think of somebody like Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods won the U.S. Masters in 2019 again. Mm -hmm. uh, and that guy finished that co that that competition. He won the what would, is arguably probably, uh, you know, the, one of the greatest victories, uh, uh, greatest golf tournaments on the planet, and went back to his coach to improve upon his swing mm -hmm. to make to 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 tweak it a little bit. Now this yep. guy's a golfer in the world, mm -hmm. but he still has a coach. Yep, and uh, I think it's that. That ability to let go, to open yourself mm -hmm. up, to rely on other people to help you. Yep. Uh, you talked about bodybuilding. I mean, I'm sure bodybuilders have coaches on on how to pose and how to yep. train and how to tech, you know, the techniques of uh, squatting, all these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Accepting that we don't, we we it can't be the best of yep. everything. Yep. It's okay to reach out and ask for help. Yeah, and, and and open up your mind to receive that help. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. It's, um, you know, something I've always found um, and you might find it yourself, but having come through sporting, sporting history, most of my life, like my brothers played uh, football from, I would think I was the age of four. So I was always around it. I was either playing Milo cricket or, um, you know, su summer season touch or rugby league, AFL. There was always something to be said about having a coach or another player around you or someone in a higher league that was better than you that you can almost look up to and say, well, how do I suck less? How do I get better at? How do I improve this? Like having two older brothers, it was nothing but competition and challenge all the time. But it was also that sense of, well, they've got two years or four years of me, depending on their age, of stuff that I haven't done yet or I don't know. Well, how can I learn from them? How can I take that off them and make me better and sort of use it against them or, you know, go to their coaches and say, well, what are you guys doing this season to get better? And, you know, I was that was me from pretty much like five years old. And there's something yeah. to be said for that exposure to mentoring and coaching across your life that it opens you up to the idea of trying to get better and trying to find how to be better rather than just simply thinking you're the best. That difference between a, a growth mindset and a fixed mindset that, you know, someone with a fixed mindset might look at it and say, well, I've got all the skills I need. I don't need to be any better. Or a CEO might say, well, I don't need to be any better. I'm in the right position. Someone with a growth mindset, we're going to say, well, you know, I'm good at this, but I suck here. I'm good at this, but how do I get better at that? How can I find someone to help me improve that? Right. And that, you know, by the sounds of it, that's literally everyone in the SAS, which you can't ask for much more of a growth opportunity than that. Yeah, exactly right. And it's about accepting that there's always room for improvement. And look, the wonderful thing about that is, Every day we change, uh, mm -hmm. the enemy is watching. The enemy is mm -hmm. always watching. And they will say, well, we know how the SAS operates now in the jungle. So let's develop our tactics around that. The next time we meet the enemy, we're doing something totally different because mm -hmm. we're changing every day. And I think, wow, okay, they're doing something different. Let's go back. We'll come back to them again. And they meet us again in six months time. They can't beat us because we're doing something different. We're continuously changing. And I think that's the same in a business environment. If mm -hmm. you are... If you are rapidly changing the way you deliver your service, the competition will always try to chase. Mm -hmm. They will always find themselves in the rearview mirror, trying to chase you to keep up. Eventually, they'll give up, mm -hmm. and your your business will succeed, and you your you and your team will succeed yeah. because you have that ability to uh, accept change, rapidly change, adapt to the new situation, and get after it and move forward. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, it's it's something to be said for kind of uh, just staying on the front foot and always being trying to progress, right? Like you just, I don't like stagnation. I find, I find, you know, stagnation, calm waters lead to mold, right? And I just find that people that want to sit still, I think they've done enough. It just never actually lasts. If you're, if you're at a point where you think you're, you're content or you've done enough, someone else is doing more. Someone else is finding a way to be better. Someone's finding a way to improve. Yeah. Yeah. The moment you sit down and relax, that's it. You're done. They'll get past you. Mm. Well, I guess let's uh, let's take a step because we've you've, you've kind of touched on a little bit about your service and deployments, but a little bit of, of what's okay to talk about. Uh, some of your deployments, your tours, like uh, there's, and I always find this even with people when I train them, coach them in, in sport teams. There's something about training, and there's something about actually living it and finding like uh, like you were saying before, when the guns start, when the bullets start flying, everything changes. Uh, you know, Mike Tyson said everyone's got to got, got a plan until they get punched in the face. What, do you, what, what would you say is the is the biggest, I guess, well, obviously the lie of fire is the biggest difference, but the difference between when, you, when you're drilling the skills in a training or, you know, when you're in practice and you guys are all uh, in sort of like unison and in, in, the, in the practice rooms versus in deployment onto uh, being faced with real fire. What do you think the, or what would you be able to describe as the biggest differential between everyone, the way they think, the way they operate, the way they do things? Well, I think for us, because we, we train so heavily, we, we, we spend... Uh, you know, for, an example is for every bullet I fired on, on, a, on, a, on a training range, I probably spent five hours dry practicing that weapon, mm-hmm. uh, using that weapon in a dry situation without firing a bullet, just so I was an expert at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time you find yourself in that situation where bullets are flying, what happens is you are immediately rely on that training. And without you knowing it, uh, you know, the, the drill is when when bullets fly, you will run, hit the ground, crawl, observe, aim, and return fire. Uh, I found myself doing that subconsciously mm-hmm. without even being aware that my body was now on the ground and I was doing this and and this is what was going on. Uh, so that it, and and it was a good positive take that training works. Mm-hmm. Um, training repeatedly and a multitude of scenarios for us mm-hmm. works. Now in a business environment, well, how does that work? Uh, how do you adapt that? to what, you know, where we were, look, in a counter-terrorist role, we trained so heavily as a four-man team. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we, we we had that, you would rotate through this capability for a year where you would train to storm houses, buses, mm-hmm. planes, high-rise buildings to, to save hostages, not necessarily kill terrorists, but to save hostages. But when we first started training together as a four-man team, when we came together, there would be yelling and screaming. There would be talking, and we, you know, yelling over top of each other. And uh, you would go through a scenario and shoot targets and do all these sorts mm-hmm. of things. And when you got to the end, it would, I couldn't remember what I did. I could what room I went into and who I did, which door I opened, and uh, and you know, looking at the videos later on, we were so slow and all over yeah. the place. But we trained so intently that within five or six weeks, there was no talk. Yeah, we were flying through the house or the plane, and uh, we were accurate. And we were—I knew exactly what the other three members were doing, even if it was behind me. Yeah. I knew what they were doing, uh, and we were so in tune with each other. Mm. And that when we came out and we debriefed, we discussed it, and we took every pace, every step we took, we analysed it. What yeah. could we have done? How could we have changed that? What could we have done to make that better? To make sure to ensure the success of each mm-hmm. mission. Uh, so, you know, it was 
full on and always bloody intense. Yeah. What was the, what was the, uh, you know, I guess I, I've to no degree experienced anything similar, but in a similar essence in, in all my athletes and all my sort of uh, like my business clients, mentoring clients, I have a similar premise where, you know, I encourage, I call it just watching tape. And it used to be what we do back in rugby league days after, you know, we're playing schoolboys or we have like a, cause like one of the, one of the best things about my school experience was we had rugby league as a program. So we were able to like, like part of our schooling curriculum was to have rugby league as a class. So one of our training days after a season or after a, um, after a, a competition run would be to sit back and watch film or each week, like the coach would pick our points. If we lost, be like, all right, we're watching this and watch the film because we be able to see like, okay, when you thought you threw this pass, this is what happened. Or when you thought you kicked the ball in this direction, this is what happened. Where was the rest of the team moving with you? And there's something that, be, that can be said for that unbiased reflection, just sort of looking back and say, what did I do? What did the rest of the team do when I thought I was doing this? Or how did I react when this happened? It's the same thing when I have athletes that I get them to record training sessions. Just go back and watch how you executed that movement. Did you really squat the way that you thought you did? Did you really um, you know, move the weight in this direction as you said that you did to me? Was it intensity there? Was the intent in your movements? Did you execute with intention? And when you know they'll say, yeah, it did for sure. You go back and watch it and it's like, you know, you said you train with intensity, but there's about 10 reps left in the tank here. You've got a little bit left here where you thought you were training hard, but hard's here and you were kind of here. How about we go back and, and have another crack at that? And, you know, that unbiased openness to that reflection of you're just watching film. You can't be, you can't be emotional about it. You just have to look, sit and look and say, well, I did that. That's what I did. How do we make it better? And I just find that that, that process alone just changes people. Cause like, you know, it can't be biased. You can't have emotion towards it. It's just simply, I did that. And now I have to improve it. Or if I want to get better, that's what I do better. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, I would also adapt that to my business world where if I put in a tender to win some work, um, if I lost the tender, then we would get together as a team. We mm -hmm. would take that whole thing apart and say, well, how could, why did we lose? How could we have done it better? Uh, what should we have changed? Was our cost model out? Was our marketing model out? Mm -hmm. uh, but conversely, if I won the tender, I would do the same thing. Yep. What did we do that worked? What yeah. was good? What else could we have done to uh, guarantee the success mm -hmm. next time? How could we have done that better? So just winning doesn't mean that you don't yeah. sit down and watch that tape. Yeah, winning exactly. means there is always room for improvement somewhere. Yeah. just So regardless of situation, there's a debrief, basically. A debrief yeah, exactly or reflection right. moment. Yeah, exactly right. But look, I mean, back to your question a couple of guys. A couple of questions ago, you know, I've, I, I have been involved in situations uh, where my SAS unit has been with uh, the uh, the regular defence force. Mm -hmm. uh, and on one occasion, we were located in Rwanda mm -hmm. and uh, uh, at a refugee camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was uh, myself and my colleague, uh, one of my team members, uh, and 32 um, ADF personnel, including mm -hmm. nurses, doctors, and um, a small section of infantry. Um, while we we're in the refugee camp, the local uh, militia decided that they 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 wanted these camps uh, vacated. It wasn't happen happening quickly enough, so they surrounded all the 110,000 refugees. They surrounded them and they opened fire. Uh, and while they were shooting, there were um, intra-harmway militia within those camps. The people who had committed the genocide a year previous running through the refugees to tell them to stop, you have to stay here and keep us protected, swinging machetes at people and, um, uh, and, and killing people in that way. So from a leadership point of view and trying to work in with, with a team that I wasn't regularly with, that was a yeah. challenge. Yeah, of course. Uh, 
but it was a matter of stepping up, uh, taking on that role, working within that team and recognising everybody's capabilities. The doctors and nurses had a role to do. The signaller had a role to do. Mm-hmm. You know, get, get, a, get a mass casualty call. Uh, you know, we've got 10,000 dead people now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let the UN know that we're getting, you know, this, you know, this could be an imminent wipeout of 32 Australian Defence Force personnel. Um and trying to help the young soldiers on the uh, perimeter, trying to hold that line, because obviously refugees were trying to run at us for safety and protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, when those, and, and but, you know, at the same time, we've got rockets and mortars and bullets flying over our head and the old cheeky Rwandan soldier take, taking a pot shot at us as well. So it was a very full on experience, but your training still comes back. Control yeah. what you can control. Yeah. What you can't control, just put that aside for now. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, from even from that situation, you refer to something so stoic. Like it's a uh, a principle that I ingrain into people when it comes to just perspective. Um, you know, I find that people get so overwhelmed by the simplest things sometimes that you know the the mind becomes so overwhelmed with all these tasks got to do, or like you know I've got to diet today and train today, and I've got to execute my cardio and yada yada, and just, they get overwhelmed. I've also got to go to work. Well, firstly, like, let's take it back a notch. What can you control today? What's the stuff that you're in charge of that you have control of? I mean, if in the most elite situation like that, that actually demands pressure and, uh, you know, attention and immediate response, if you have the ability to stop and decompartmentalize and say, hey, what are we in control of here? What do we have charge of that can make a difference? The rest of it, there's no point being worked up about, you know, there's no point flailing arms and, and crying and, and sort of moaning about it when we've got actions to take. What are the actions that we can take? That's that level of intensity can still be broken down like that by yourself, then people in, in general life, I find, you know, that same principle can apply. Just take that step back and just sort of look back and say, well, what am I in charge of? What do I actually have control over? And is the rest of it worth being worked up about? Because if we put it into perspective and sort of shift that mindset, you being able to do that with that, that situation that is catastrophic and someone having a stressful day at work, I think we can kind of, you know, we can work something out here to sort of pull your your anxiety or your your arousal down a notch or two. Yeah, exactly right. And you know, I don't, and I don't, uh, I, I certainly don't belittle people who who do find themselves struggling with twenty seven oh, no, emails, yeah. twenty seven emails, and five bosses yeah. are demanding this, and they're juggling twelve balls at the same time uh, because everyone manages things in a different way. Yeah, of course, uh, but I would say, you know, Mao Zedong, for all his faults, he had a great saying during the revolution. If you have to march 10,000 Lee, you have to start by taking one step. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I love that. I think that if, if, if you just don't know, yeah, just take one step forward. Mm-hmm. It might be the wrong one, but by doing that, you will quickly realize you've gotten yourself off the target. You've got yourself moving. You've got yourself tackling one problem mm-hmm. and you'll quickly realize that, okay, I'm not quite right here. You know, an example in that refugee camp, I, I came across a woman who, uh, because there were piles of bodies everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I was walking through, this woman grabbed him on the leg. She was laying on the ground. She grabbed me. I looked down and her thumb had been severed all the way down here. It was kind of hanging off. Oh. And so I pulled a bandage out of my pocket and I started bandaging it. And then I had a look at her and I realized that she was barely breathing. And uh, when I had a look, I just eased her shirt to one side and I could see the bullet hole in her chest. So what you quickly determined that she'd been pushed down a soldier had stood over the top and she put a hand up and the bullet went yeah. through her chest i shouldn't have been treating this i should have been treating her, yeah. her chest wound yeah so it's just a point of you know switching me on you know i did something but 
at least I was moving forward and doing something. Yeah. It diverted me onto the right action, uh, which was to fix this, uh, which I think is the right thing. So, you know, look, another example is the the tsunami in, uh, in, in the Asian tsunami I think, in mm -hmm. 2005. I was in Aceh, Northern Sumatra. Mm -hmm. I got off the plane at midnight and I could smell death. I mean, there were 200,000 dead people lying in the streets of Aceh. It was just horrendous. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, trucks were driving down the road the next day with full of bodies and uh, mass graves everywhere. And uh, it was just an awful, awful experience. About two days later, I went with a, uh, a journalist crew further south and this... Uh, this lovely nurse, she was just beside herself. She she could barely control her emotions. She said, Paul, it's terrible. Yesterday I was on the beach and and I saw two dead people uh, on the beach. And my first thought was, are you shitting me? Two dead <laughs> people? I just saw 200,000 dead people. Yeah. But I quickly corrected myself because for her, That's a lot. that was her reality. Yeah. For her, that was the worst thing she had ever, ever seen. Yeah. And for her, relatively speaking, it was awful, awful, awful. Mm. It was her sleepless nights. For me, it was nothing. So, you know, everyone everyone has their own different uh, uh, relative situation. Uh, but, you know, the advice remains the same. And as yeah. you quite rightly said, control what you can and get started, get into it. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a powerful point there you're sort of talking on is the way that you know, our experience is sort of shape what we understand and, and sort of our perspective, right? Like for me, and, and again, this is, this is nowhere to compare what you've seen there. Cause you know, those situations are just awful, but you know, I, I've, I've been through some, you know, a lot of listeners and stuff will already know that I've talked about it before is like, yeah, my father passed away four years ago. Uh, he battled cancer for like 10 years. My mom had two tumors that she had removed herself only a year later, you know, separations and breakups and that sort of jazz, um, depression, car accidents. Like I've, I've been through some things to know to, to degree to yourself, but each time I found that it's increased my capacity for handling mental toughness. Like every time I've been through something like that, it's it's fostered a bit more resilience in me where I've found another level that I can operate at. And I've, I've taken that to my business and I sort of said, well, you know, um, I could work at this level, <clears throat> excuse me. Every time I think that now that I'm stressed or I'm tired or I have a limit or I found my capacity, that just tells me now I've got another capacity. I've got another level to reach or to work towards. Well, you know, I was juggling 30 clients. Well, now I've got 40 and that's easy. I've got 50 clients. That's easy. I've got this level. I'm also building courses or I'm doing these things. Like every time I think there's a limit here, I'm like, well, you know, that last limit was a limit and I've got past it. And every time I find that when people sort of tell me about how stressful things are, I try to reshift that to sort of look at and say, well, you know, there's people that have been through tenfold worse than us that have come out tenfold better. How do we just take that situation you're learning through? And instead of looking at it as being defeated by, or, you know, it's breaking me or it's ruining me. How do we take that and realize that it's actually shaping you to be better in the future? We're sort of learning a new limit for ourselves. We've got a new capacity here. We've got a new bandwidth, if you will, that, we can now get through the shit because we've just showed ourselves we can. And the last time you thought you'd break, you didn't break. And the time before that, you didn't break. So, you know, just going back on that point there where she's seen two people and you've seen 200,000 people, like, yeah, it's a lot for her. But in the future now, when she's working in the field or she's being deployed somewhere, she's going to go, I know how to react when I see dead people because I've seen two. You're obviously at the level where you've seen 200,000, but just for her to get started now, like, you know, she has that, at least that capacity to handle seeing death. So she knows what to do and get to get to work. Yeah, you're right. And you touch also touch on an interesting point that I just, well, I was encouraged in my earlier career. And uh, uh, it was actually uh, a, a Brooklyn's grandfather when I, who was very much a father figure to me when I was a young lad, mm -hmm. uh, because my father wasn't around. But um, 
when I was accepted in the army and, and got into the army, he said to me, oh, well, well done. That's great. What next? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, well, actually, I'll think about doing the uh, SA selection course. I got into the SAS. I went back. I caught up with him as I did. And he said, well, great. You're in the SAS. What next? I thought, Jesus, <laughs> take it easy. Are you sure? <laughs> There's no impressive this man. There's nothing left of me. You know, <laughs> you know you're going to get excited. But it, but what he was saying was right. Um don't sit back and accept that. That's great. Mm-hmm. You've done good. What else are you going to do now? Where yep. do you go from there? And uh, I think at my age, and I'm I'm a lot older than you, but uh, you know, I just finished an MBA. Yeah. Uh, and it you know it took me a year and a half to do that. And uh, I because I have always wanted to do that, and uh, COVID mm-hmm. allowed me to do that, and mm-hmm. my situation here in the states allowed me to do that. But it also came down to that: what next? Yep. What do I need now? And uh, and, you know, and I think the day you stop saying that, well, you might as well go to the retirement village or something and, you know, hang up the gloves. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's something that me and Brooklyn share a very similar philosophy on is I, I said that, uh, you know, one of the things that I was never uh, intellectually sound at school. I was all about sport. Like the rugby league was my career. I was going to go pro. I wanted to get an NRL contract, get a trade if I had to. And that was, that was the plan. I was... I would say I was intelligent, but like the, the interest in schooling and the subject I had no interest in weren't really there for me. Like I, I love my modern history and ancient history. I love rugby league. I loved PE, um, you know, classes like that sort of hands-on stuff. But if it wasn't of my interest, I didn't care. Mm. But now, you know, my, my thing is always, I want to keep like, till the day I die, I'm going to keep learning something. And, you know, there's, there's always a premise of something I don't know. And, you know, with life and time, obviously there's a limitation to how much we can ever learn, but as long as I'm going, there's going to be something I'm going to try and do to be better or learn or know so that I can continually improve. You know, I, I, my business itself has no relevance to understanding history, but lunch breaks that I give myself downtime, I give myself like my YouTube is basically just history, watching videos or documentaries or reviewing like uh, uh, war film and stuff like that. Like I, you know, I, I never say that war is great, but when we can go through and look back at things or situations that happen, like my, my, pastime passion if you will is just studying world war ii i just do it because it's something that i find interesting and relevant to to understand for the future you know these things are not related to my career if you will but there's always something to learn or progress through or study and understand that to me you know till the day i'm done there'll be something i'm trying to improve or learn otherwise what's the point you know this whole this whole notion to me of oh you know you get the white picket fence you get the house you get the trade you're married you have a couple of kids and settle down and that's it you know the the sporting career didn't happen so now you're just at work a little bit resentful and spiteful about the fact that there was an injury or a problem work 40 years retire and that's it what's the point you know go live on the beach and that's it that to me it was like that doesn't that doesn't tick any of the boxes i have absolutely no interest in that whatsoever it's 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 too content for me and i get everyone's different but you know, to think that 20 of, a year, of the last years you might have should just be spent doing nothing. I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. No, that's right. And I would argue that, uh, you know, that is such a sad waste of a life that people, you know, I, I would hope, regardless of what what uh, expectations people have, but, you know, you need to live to your full potential. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would be horrible to get to that point of retirement age where you still had half a tank left of things that yeah. you just you just talked about doing, you talked about it, talked yeah. about it. Everyone can talk about doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's those who finish doing what they're talking about rather than, uh, you know, setting it up. I'm going to do this. I'm going to yeah. do that. Yeah. You're going to do nothing. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. end up achieving nothing. Well, you know, my thoughts are, well, how about a bit of shut the hell up? Yeah. Get on to it. Get it done. Yeah. And then tell me that you've done it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, we're not, we're not judged by what we start. We're only judged by what we finished. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, and yeah, you're right. Keep going, keep moving forward. Uh, continuous improvement, it, whether it be in business or whatever you're doing. The other thing I would touch, you, you touched on uh, the war movies. I think there's so much to be learned from, mm-hmm. uh, from history. And, uh, yep. you know, one of, the, one of the great lessons of watching battlefields is if you're not winning the battle, no worries. It's okay to take a step back, find another battlefield mm-hmm. and come back to that fight on a different battlefield, yeah. uh, a battlefield more to your liking, a battlefield, uh, a location that, that you've established that you'd, you've set up for your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where, this is where I can make the gains. This is where I can win. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, yeah. It's something it, it, I find interesting when I talk to people and they have absolutely no relevance or they have no, not even an ounce of knowledge to, to something like history when there's so much to be learned from it. Um, you know, I get lost in it. I could spend like, you know, I'll, I'll look through say the 20th century. There's so much that just happened in the 20th century. I get lost there for days. And then my, my compulsion just goes, well, what's next? What else is there to learn here? And, you know, then we'll go back to world war one. I'll go, okay, well, what led to world war one? I will go back here and we'll look at the creation of Europe and we'll look at, and it's just like all of these things, they, they led in sort of dominoes to where we are now. It's almost insulting not to look at it and try and understand it and piece it together to, to sort of say, well, what can I apply to life from these lessons? Well, exactly right. And the sad reality out of history is that history will repeat itself. And, you know, we've we've, we've watched um, Afghanistan as a good example, the war in Afghanistan, you know, a monumental waste of effort and, and mm-hmm. funds. The war in Vietnam, same deal. The war mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Russian military should have been able to completely destroy the Ukraine. Yep. They haven't. Uh, and they haven't because winning a guerrilla war is uh, impossible, or, mm-hmm. uh, uh, difficult and almost impossible. Uh, and the Russians will find that out and continue to find that out over this protracted period of this war. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting time for Europe going forward after this. Um, to circle back a bit, you were sort of describing about, you know, what next and kind of, uh, you know, that that whole premise of, well, what's next? Okay, that was good, but what's next? We've sort of touched on, you know, the the entry life and sort of uh, getting into training. You know, we could spend an hour at each one of these points, basically, because they're so interesting to me and, and everything that I've read and, and what I've taken away from them. But what did you know what was next when you sort of finished in the SAS? When you're like, you know what, that's I've ticked my 15 years. I, I believe Brooklyn did say there was it was a 15 years or 20. I think it was 15 years served oh, 10. in 10. 10 years. Did you know what was next after that? Or were you like kind of like, oh, let's just see what happens? Or you were all right, I've done my time here. What's the next high performance thing I'm looking for? No, I, 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 I didn't. I was already studying at university while I, mm-hmm. in my last couple of years in the SAS. Um, and again, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't graduate high school. So, uh, mm-hmm. but I knew that one thing that was next is I wanted to get a university degree. I wanted to be the first person in my family to get a degree. Yep. Uh, and I was. Uh, but, you know, I came out of Rwanda and uh, I've been away for seven months, uh, surrounded by a lot of horrible, horrible stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of people I came back with, um, the, the, the regular Defence Force personnel, found themselves, uh, you know, in, in, in hospitals and uh, really struggling to cope with life. And uh, because it was a horrific experience. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I had, a, I had two young children, a heavily pregnant wife, and I was really tired. And uh, I, I was offered an opportunity uh in a security role, a management role in, in the Highlands of PNG. And I, I, and I just made a snap decision. I, I'm going to do that. Yep. It's now time. I need a break. So there's a couple of things. In hindsight, I might have been better off just saying, hey, look, I, I actually need to take my long service leave, which I was entitled to. Yep. I need to catch my breath. But 
uh, you know, the other issue is six months later uh, in Townsville, two Black Hawk helicopters smashed into each other uh, on an exercise and 15 SAS soldiers were killed and uh, and three aviation guys were killed. Well, that was my entire team. So um, had I remained in the SAS, I mean, you never know, but uh, certainly my team and the person who took my role uh, that I was aspiring to, um, well, they all died uh, wow. in that crash. So... You know, it's hard to it's hard to say. Well, I should have stayed in, and then, but, uh, but I did look. Then September 11 happened. Shortly thereafter, mm -hmm. look away I went, and my life was just a whirlwind after that. Yeah, I you know, I went to every nasty spot around the world, providing security management uh, processes mm -hmm. for a variety of the Australian government, the Japanese government, uh, the New Zealand government. Uh, Sixty Minutes, Channel Seven, Channel Nine, Channel Ten, uh, everywhere. Um, mining companies in northern Iraq and you know I, I found myself doing some really cool stuff I spent some time with the the Kurds in northern Syria yeah, um, yeah. It, you know I drove with a, a mining company from southern Turkey into uh, into western Iraq and we traversed across the top of the border there across the country and I was in the war in Iraq with uh, uh, with the seventh cab the Americans and I was driving a Humvee for six for, for CNN uh, hey, wow we were right in the middle of, uh, you know, we got ambushed on multiple occasions and, uh, you know, every vehicle from the convoy had a bullet hole in it except my soft skin Humvee. <laughs> had we taken a hit, it wouldn't have been pretty. <laughs> uh, so I got to experience a lot of interesting things. I mean, when they, uh, you know, I was in, in, in Iraq when they caught Saddam. I was in Iraq when they, uh, when they found and eventually killed his two sons. And uh, I, I was in Libya um, doing some interesting stuff during Gaddafi's time and then after Gaddafi's time yeah. and NATO pounding the crap out of the place. And uh, so I've done some really, really cool stuff and ran a couple of businesses and, mm -hmm. uh, and it still is that what next, but it yeah. didn't matter which role I had. It was always, how can I do this better? Yeah. Whether it was getting a journalist team into Northern Syria, uh, which was very, very challenging. Yeah. Making sure that they get really good news, and whatever wasn't standing up in front of the camera or holding the camera, I undertook as being my job. So I wanted to make sure they got in, they got great news, they got it mm -hmm. safely. We all got on the plane and we left. Um, and I worked incredibly hard to make sure that happened to the point where we eventually would cross the Iraqi border in a plane, and I would slip into a coma uh, because <laughs> I had a lot of finally relax for a minute. Yeah, exactly right. I could lower my guard somewhat. Yeah. Do you do you think uh, like obviously obviously it's going to it's going to be something? But what do you think is the the biggest thing about these situations that changes someone? Like obviously there's just you can't quite become the person you are without going through them. But there's a bit of crucible by fire, right? That comes from these situations where and like yes, it can be cross correlated to like like you say, and you've done a fair bit here is is to business and corporate life and to your own life where you know getting under the pressure of it, you know, a diamond is molded under pressure, right? So what do you think is that, is that sort of, uh, I want to say the pressure of, or the intensity of that, that really changes someone you just can't get elsewhere. No, you're right. And look, the other thing is too, I mean, I can sit here and say how great I am and I've done these great things and, you know, woohoo, go me. Well, I've also <laughs> made a lot of mistakes. And, of course. Uh, in, uh, when was that? Probably 2008, you know, I made a huge mistake. I I, I dropped my guard and mm -hmm. I was in southern Nepal 
doing a great gig with these uh, with the International Federation of Journalists. Mm-hmm. I was training journalists, Nepalese journalists, on how they could improve their security and improve their delivery of their service because so many were being killed. And it was a great gig. We were traveling mm-hmm. to those real remote villages all over Nepal. It was really cool. And uh, and one day, the guy who was looking after me, the Nepalese guy, said, look, we're very close down here to the Indian border. Let's go and have a look at it. And I said, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, I can think of about 200 reasons now why I should have just said, no, thanks, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, because the Nepalese and Indians can cross back and forth over that border uh, freely. Well, the big white dude from Australia, he cannot. And there was yeah. nothing on nothing on the ground to mark the border. So my guy in these rickshaws, we we went there and we had a look at this thriving marketplace. And then they started arguing with each other, the, my, my fixer and, and his driver. We'd crossed into India. And I said, mate, you're kidding me. Where's the border? And I looked behind. It was a big white boom gate up behind this mango tree. That was the border. So I got out. I'm, I'm going. And uh, this policeman stepped in my way. And he said, you can't go back now. You've got to go to the immigration office and talk to them. Well, you know, away I went. And uh, and and one thing led to another. I got caught up in this corruption thing and everyone wanted money. And by the time they got to put their hand out for money, I was locked up in a prison. Uh, and I spent 24 days in a filthy, disgusting Indian prison. Jesus. Uh, while, you know, the forces that be were working on this to get me out of that situation. Uh, fortunately for me, I had spent some time working at the High Commission in Pakistan, and I knew the High Commissioner, uh, and she was able to uh, call Canberra. They called me, and we could get that ball that ball rolling really quickly before I was locked away, uh, and they took my cell phone from me. But it was also at a time in my life where my father was quite ill, and I knew that he was going to die very quickly, he had mm-hmm. cancer. And so there was a lot, a lot of pressure on me. I mean, I had some pretty savage people in that prison. Uh, you know, I was under the pump a lot uh, in that jail. And I had people telling me that I was going to do somewhere between six months and five years Jesus. in this prison. And so mentally, it was a, it was a great challenge to overcome that mental anguish yeah. of myself, particularly as I knew that I was the oldest. I didn't want the burden to fall on my brother yeah. uh, to help, you know, arrange funerals and be there for my dad. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure on. And, yeah. I, and people say, boy, oh boy, I wish you never went across that border. Well, yeah, I do. I, I wish I never did went across the border. I wish I never went to jail in India. Yeah. Holy moly. I, I learned some wonderful lessons and I met some really interesting people. And <laughs> Uh, you know, the local mayor who uh, he's not voted in, it's a government appointed role. He and I became very good friends and he was very instrumental in getting me past the corruption and getting me out of that jail. Uh, So it it, it certainly changed me. That was a a really good trigger point for me to, uh, it was at that point where I tried to slow down a little bit where I started not saying yes to every job. Uh, I was able to pick and choose and, and, and and tried to meld a bit of quality of life with my professional life. Yeah, wow, that's um, yeah, that's definitely a, a, a turning point if you were a learning moment. I guess that's not something you've trained for, or maybe you have trained for it in case this did happen. But you know, I'm sure the SAS covered every potential outcome or scenario. But you know, to go from a battlefield to hey, this is what you thought your job was going to be. By the way, now you're in a prison. I mean, there's a 
There's a lot of different mental skills that come into play there, but probably similar skills as well, really. Like, let's just get through the day. Let's just get through this moment, get through this week. Um, you know, don't spread on what you can't control. Let's focus on what can be in, in, put in front of each other and and controlled there. But I guess, like, yeah, that 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 becomes a pretty changing moment um, that would be different to your standard battlefield. Well, exactly right. Because in my situation, I was always in control. Because mm-hmm. I always believe in my life. If I'm not in control of my life, somebody else will take control of it. So yep. I will control it. But when you're in jail, you have no control, yep. nothing. You have everyone else outside that prison. They are working frantically. You can't see it. So you have your doubts and uh, you have no control over what's going inside. But what can you control? You can control your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not big on meditating and I still can't really do it, mm-hmm. but I can control and I can calm myself mm-hmm. and I can breathe. I can practice breathing. And, you know, when I'm sleeping on a bare floor that's wet, there are rats running through the place and it's it smells like a, you know, disgusting old toilet, the whole place. And, but, you know, and, and it's really hard to focus on positives when you're in that situation. But yeah. you have to look for them. You have to find them somewhere. Mm-hmm. You have to just focus on, get till tomorrow. And the challenge also was that I had people coming and saying, don't worry, Mr. Paul, do not worry. Tomorrow... The judge said you are free. Oh, good, right, right. Then comes tomorrow. I don't hear from anybody. Yeah. Until yeah. Later. Again, so you quickly wash all that away. I mentally prepared my brain to be here for six months, mm-hmm. and uh, and I got out twenty four days later. So you know, in that way, I was fortunate. There was a positive. I had a victory, mm-hmm. but I it was it was a it was a bloody challenge. I can tell you that was tough. I guess like, like these are obviously they're nowhere near comparable and, and one was a devastation to many and one was kind of devastating to yourself. Would you say the, would you say the, the Rwandan situation brought more out of you or would you say being in the prison was kind of a bigger, more like, a, as you said, like you weren't in control. So it challenged you a little bit differently, but like, would you say one or the other was more prominent in bringing out who you were or your capabilities or your mental skills? Like obviously both very uniquely different and obviously sad, but was there a sort of like that pressure was yeah, you know, I've trained for that pressure so I can kind of handle it better. This pressure brought out a bit different. Yeah, they were both very different. The situation in Rwanda was that I was also surrounded by other people. Yeah. So if I needed to mentally lean upon somebody else, I could have I could have mm-hmm. done that. Um, one of the things I did after Rwanda was write notes. I started yep. writing stuff. And I did that to, to to clear the air a little bit, to get some of the baggage off my shoulders and, mm-hmm. and put it on paper. And then I sent reports back to my commanding officer. Uh so I was able to manage that, but I also did surprise myself how I coped with that situation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but you quickly learned that in those horrible situations, you, 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 you know, I coped with it then by locking it away in the vault in the back yeah. of my head somewhere, yeah. never to be opened up again. Uh, the problem is when you're, you know, I was probably, I don't know, my late 20s then. Later on in life, and certainly when I got to, when I ended up in, in a prison in India, uh, I was alone. It was yep. up to me. I had to control it myself. But um, you know, the SAS also prepared me for that. I can I can work with a team, but I can work alone. Uh, but I also didn't have that government support that you would yep. hope that you get when you're in the military. And I was alone, uh, and there was a lot piling up. And it was actually around that period of my life where I did start to struggle, where mm-hmm. I'd locked away all these. You know, I was involved in a shootout in the Highlands of PNG, and you know, lives were lost, and I was responsible for some of those for, for one of those lives lost. You lock all this stuff away, and yeah. uh, you know, death of fathers, as as you're aware of, uh, 
death of my brother when I was when I was a, I was a kid. You lock all the stuff in the vault, but so, at some point in life, that vault starts to leak. Yeah, and the stuff starts trickling back into your brain, and that's when you you really find yourself being challenged. How do you cope with that? And you know, there are a lot of people, uh, former military personnel, men and women. Who struggle with that now and uh mm-hmm. you know we've seen the suicides amongst uh yes. veterans it's incredibly high uh if you couple that situation with a poor relationship a poor understanding partner at the time mm-hmm. boy oh boy it's uh it, it's it's a real uh mountain to carry around and and a real challenge to be able to deal with that and when you you know i found myself when i got to that point anything that didn't add value to my life i cut mm-hmm. it away yep. it was gone I just severed it because I didn't at that point have the mental capacity yep. to carry that stuff. I, yep. I couldn't shoulder it because there was too much coming out in my brain. Mm-hmm. I started moving stuff aside and yep. uh, it was actually the best thing that could have happened to me. Uh, yep. You know, it forced me to, to a bit of, bit of a clean sweep. Yeah. I've, I've found myself giving similar advice to clients, to listeners, to followers, is especially when you get later on in life and stuff really starts to happen, you start to see where, you know, what is serious and what's not really worth reacting to. It gets to a certain point where, you know, I call it a seven or higher. And it gets to a point where sometimes when you've got your own shit going on and, you know, we like to be there as friends or as, as family and mates and what have you, but to at a certain point when you've got, you know, the world on what feels like your shoulders, it gets to a point where your mental capacity or your mental bandwidth is just not quite there. And I sort of say to them, you know, let's look at it as a seven or higher. If people are coming to you with gossip and drama and just petty bullshit, that's a two or a three. When you, re- when someone really needs to help, like, you know, I'm about to be evicted on the street or, you know, someone's about to pass away or my wife's going to divorce me, that starts being a seven or an eight. And, you know, you, all right, let's take that on. But at a certain point, you've got to put your own mental well-being and capacity first before you can help others. Right. It's like you, you taught that on a plane when you take off. I'm no doubt you taught that when you, when you're in other, other environment situations, you know, before you can help others, you got to make sure you're okay. You got to make sure that you can handle the situation and, and obviously then go out and help other people. So often I see people will just, I'll just, just, yeah, I'll take it in. What, what do you got to say? What do you got, you know, what are we talking about? And you know, what's the drama? What's the gossip? And it doesn't seem like much, but when you've got all this stuff repressed and locked away, as you said, you know, it's inside the vault and you haven't learned how to use it yet. Um, you, know, you haven't you know, learned how to incorporate it, if you will. That stuff starts to add up and pile up and it's the few little pebbles on top and it's the straw that broke the camel's back, right? And you, you know, those, what seems like insignificant concepts or ideas or people gossiping, that shit starts to add up and starts to weigh you down. And it's all of a sudden, well, shit, you know, now everything's coming out and the whole, the vault's broken open and everything's sort of gone wrong because you've just been listening to people's drama. And it's like, there's, there's bigger things in life. Don't, don't stress yourself about that little stuff. Like, like you said, cut it away. If you've got people who just want to come to you every day to gossip about bullshit, when you've got, you know, business plans and training plans and you've got career goals and ambitions or study in university, let just cut the weight, that shit away and just sort of let it, you know, let it go. You don't need that stuff around when you're trying to achieve things or make things happen or just take care of yourself. No, you're exactly right. And I think that, uh, that comes into a business relationships and personal relationships. Yeah. I mean, uh, you you know, I, I always believe that you you can't be a good leader unless you know exactly who you are, mm-hmm. unless you are comfortable in your own skin and you're mm-hmm. comfortable with your ability to deliver and be vulnerable to the things that you don't know. Then you will make a great leader. Can you be a great partner if you know if you meet up with a a, a new partner and you're carrying around all this baggage and being mm-hmm. dragged down by? by people around you, by emotions, by everything else. Are you truly going to be the best you can be for that uh, in that relationship? And obviously not. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't expect anybody else to make me happy. 
yeah. I need to make myself happy. And I exactly think happiness right. is a choice. And one day you wake up and you realize that the only one that's going to make me happy is me. And that's a choice yep. I need to make. That's it. Cut away all the uh, dead wood. Time for a spring clean. Um, and I will be happy from this point going forward. And then you you become this, you know, comfortable in your own skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you learn to forgive whatever mistakes you may have made before. You're mm-hmm. only human. And you move forward to be the best person you can be. And then you become a really good leader, yep. a good team member, and a, and, and a good uh, a good partner in a relationship. Yeah, I mean, that's like a, a perfect point right there. I mean, uh, one of my favorite principles in, in my psychological research and uh, reading of philosophy is Dr. Jordan Peterson talks about a lot with uh, with a very early age uh, psychologist, Dr. Carl Jung. And he talks about the way that people really become who they are and they really start to show their capacity when they start to actually accept and embody what he refers to as their shadow. And it's that all the stuff that's locked away and it's all the stuff that, you know, the the socially incorrect stuff or the negative thoughts or the bad, uh, the bad ideas you might have or the things you want to do. You really start to become who you are when you're aware of your capacity for those things and yeah. you're capable of doing them, but you don't act on them. It's not pretending that you don't have, you know, you can't do it or, you know, you, you aren't that sort of bad person. It's recognizing that all the bad things done in human history was done by humans. So we're all capable of these bad things, but it's, you know, how we use that capacity and that capability that, you know, kind of starts to shape you a bit differently. Like you're capable of, you know, great things and bad things. And that sort of makes you a more complete person, right? Like you're, you start to see what you're truly capable of in all realms because I'm not repressing it. I'm simply accepting that it's a part of me. I'm capable of it. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, it's easy to be, you know, it's easy to get angry. It's easy to have road rage. It's easy to abuse somebody and, Mm -hmm. But to what end? Yeah. And uh, what did you did you add value to yourself? Did you yeah. cause your heart rate to go up? Did you cause yourself stress for nothing? And mm-hmm. you know how did you how did you uh, add value to that person? Even if you know if they're an idiot or whatever, that's their problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know I still fly off every, every so often, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, as, as we all do because we're human. But I also correct myself very quickly and say, "How yeah. oh, you doing? Who cares? Mm-hmm. You know, forget about that." Yeah, it's a. Uh that degree of emotional regulation and intelligence that not enough people have, I think. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Mate, we're, we're coming to the end here because I could, I could chat to you all day. Uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest. I could be in awe of the things that we could talk about for hours, but you know, we've got, we've got uh, a book that I'm looking forward to reading. Um, Brooklyn's told me many things about it, but uh, the hard day was yesterday. I believe is the, is the book you've written. The easy day was yesterday. The easy day. Sorry. The easy day was yesterday. Yeah. The hard days are coming. Yeah. The easy day. The hard was days yesterday. are coming. Yeah, and it was actually a uh, on the second day of the selection course. This wonderful warrant officer, uh, uh, who was uh, a, a renowned patrol commander in Vietnam, so he was still he would come back and help run these courses. And he said to his men, "The easy day was yesterday." And I thought, "Holy shit! If yesterday was easy, this <laughs> can't be good." And uh, it always stuck with me, and I thought it was a great saying. So mm-hmm. uh, that's where the, the the name of the book came from. And what, uh, what I guess, a quick synopsis, if you will, what is the, what is the premise of the book? Obviously, it's going to be a story about yourself, your adventures, your experiences. Well, it is. Look, I, I would warn everybody. It says something on the front cover, you know, the the life of an SAS soldier or something. Yes, there are small segments about the SAS in the book, mm-hmm. uh, and everything about the SAS is, that I've said has already been written before, so I'm not yeah. giving anything away. But it's also about everything else I've done. So. What I, I tended to do for my own mental stability, I would write down after every major event in my life, I'd write, you know, 20 or 30 pages on what happened, how I felt, mm-hmm. what took place, interactions, blah, blah, blah. The end result was I had 
all these different chapters and events, but I didn't have a book and yeah. nothing put it together. When I went to jail, I uh, again, I was writing on uh, old newspapers, different things that were occurring. And it just came to me in jail that I could weave the jail experience in and out of um, all those other adventures in my life and, uh, and, and, and sort of flick back and forth between the two. And then I had a book and then yeah. I, I sent it off to three publishers and they three publishers came back and said, yeah, we will we'll take it. And, uh, I had the, I was like, yeah, had the luxury of being able to pick which one I wanted to go with. And, uh, it was a great experience. Hey, that's awesome. That's, um, mm. yeah. I mean, to be able to put what you've done and been through and experience into words to help other people understand. I mean, yeah, obviously it probably wasn't the intention to start off with, but you've, you've probably written in a way that people can take home some points or, you know, at least some lessons from yourself that they can implement their own lives or their own, their own uh, shortcomings or struggles, if you will. I'm sure there's a few um, keeper points in there or gems amongst it that, that definitely help. Well, I hope so. And uh, for those who know me, uh, they would say they could hear me uh, saying those words and writing those words. So I hope for your listeners and, uh, uh, your clients and your supporters that uh, are listening to this and they read the book, they can hear my voice in there. It's an easy read. Uh, you know, there's no great science to it and uh, I'm sure they get through it pretty quickly. No, that's fantastic. Uh, I guess um, one, one last question, I guess, to finish up is, is from someone of your extreme nature uh, from the, from the, the trials and the tests and what you've been through. What's, what are the th- three, I guess, biggest take-home points, skills, mental abilities that you would say, help people achieve success so that they can use or learn about to really achieve what they're trying to reach. Never accept failure and and failure is okay. Mm -hmm. Failure will happen to everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Learn from it, take it on the chin and and keep going. You know, Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Keep going. And, uh, and I completely support that. Um, Last year, my wife and I, we did a, uh, a, a marathon event in the Andes in Patagonia in, uh, in South America, uh, where we ran 100 kilometers over the Andes Mountains over three days. Um, and you think, you know, my body was saying to me, hang on, Paul, we're done with this shit. You know, enough's enough. Yep. Uh, but, you know, just you just kept going and putting one foot in front of the other. But I would say, you know, the, the, the takeaways are the world's your oyster. Don't stop. There's always opportunities out there. Look for the next opportunity and go and get it. Identify that future point where you want to be if you're young enough in your career and backtrack and work out how do you need to get to that point. And don't let anyone else bring you down. Don't let the naysayers get in the way. Dream big and get after it. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, can't give a better note to finish on because that's, you know, it's like, it's like hearing my thoughts in someone just a few years longer down the track. That's that's like yeah. literally everything Five I give years. people. <laughs> Good on you, man. Thank you for that. That was uh, an interesting experience. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I wish you well. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. It's a, a very humbling experience to be able to uh, even have this much of your time um, with you know what you've done and, and where you've been. I'm looking forward to no doubt hearing more from Brooklyn to Brooklyn about everything that you keep up with and what you're doing and, and where, where you go from here, but no doubt there'll be more adventures and more things to sort of tick off. So I'm looking forward to it. Good on you, mate. Take care. Stay Cheers, safe. I appreciate it.